Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We are almost through this crazy, busy week. We have good... I think two crazies, really, but possibly good, bad, and crazy martinis today. Uh, Jim, the acquittal happened just as we expected. A uh, little bit of surprise on who ended up on which side of this. We'll talk about that much more in the second martini when we talk about Mitt Romney. But uh, in the end, the Senate finished the impeachment trial. The president was acquitted uh, 53-47 on the obstruction of Congress charge, 52-48 to on the abuse of power charge. So that means... The trial is over and the Senate can go back to its regular business and Mitch McConnell wasting zero minutes here. Uh, This is the Hill with the weeks long impeachment trial ending. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wasting no time turning the chamber's focus back to his self-professed top priority, confirming judicial nominations. McConnell teed up five judicial nominations for votes on the Senate floor as the chamber wrapped up its work for the week. The Senate is expected to take its first procedural vote on the slate Monday evening when the Republicans will need a simple majority to end the debate on Andrew Brasher's nomination to be a judge on the 11th Circuit. The other nominations are uh, Trump choices to be U.S. District Court judges. So, uh, Jim, we know that with uh, the House in Democratic hands, there's not a lot of joint resolutions that are going to get through here in the rest of 2020, especially in a campaign year. So the Senate can do what the Senate can do alone, which mainly is confirmations as well as some other things. Thanks to Harry Reid, uh, these can get jammed through pretty quickly. And uh, Mitch McConnell's back to doing what he does best. You know, Greg, the entirety of impeachment, you know, listeners know I you know, have a whole bunch of beefs with President Trump. Um, I don't think, I think it's pretty clear the president did not have the authority under the Constitution to delay the funding. He certainly didn't have the authority to delay it in secret. There are constitutional methods to withhold that funding, but Trump didn't use any of them. I don't think Rudy Giuliani is the appropriate person to uh, be the contact or the direct person for an investigation. Like, there's a whole bunch of the argument against Trump in this impeachment trial. Trump did something really, really bad. During the entirety of this, it was kind of it was clear from the beginning you were not going to get 67 votes for removal. You were never going to get, you know, in American history, there's never been a senator who voted for an impeachment of a president of his own party until yesterday with Senator Romney. And so it was one of those things, okay, this isn't going to end in removal. So what do you want to do? You know, how much time do you want to spend on it? The message from Democrats was let's spend lots of time on this. We're going to go straight into this. We we want uh, the, the trial, we believe, was rushed. We felt like it should have had witnesses, that this should have gone on you know, for a really long time, even though everybody always knew how it was going to turn out. There was this perfect symbolism to Mitch McConnell saying, OK, and now we're on to judges. Like we were going right back to what the Senate was doing as if nothing had changed, as if nothing had happened. But in the end, for the U.S. Senate, once the verdict was rendered, there was no consequence. Trump was still the president. He was still making nominations to the judiciary. And the Senate, with Republican majority, was continuing to confirm them. It is probably a little bit bitter. I think there was a little bit of a you know symbolic gesture to the Democrats by doing that. But I think it kind of says to the country, look, whether you love impeachment or whether you didn't love impeachment, it's over. And now we're back to business as usual. And they took their best shot at the king and they missed it's not really clear what they want to do after this. We've got real business we want to get to, and this is it. So, you know, good job, Mr. Mr. Senate Majority Leader. 
And I mentioned that Harry Reid uh, gets some credit for this because he's the one that nuked the filibuster for all judicial, not really every nomination except for Supreme Court nominations. And even that filibuster has been nuked now. But uh, the story also points out an important rule change that Mitch McConnell uh, pushed through. Uh, due to a rules change enacted last year, district court nominees need only an additional two hours of debate once they overcome an initial procedural hurdle. And uh, that was one of the ways previously the Democrats were holding up nominations, particularly if uh, some of these folks were from states represented by Democrats. So uh, it's easier to get the, the nominations through. Uh, we probably won't like that if we get a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate someday. But uh, as of right now, uh, it's making sure there's a lot of lifetime appointments for uh, ostensibly conservative judges and justices. Uh, on to uh, more impeachment now. Uh, Mitt Romney was really the only Republican we weren't sure of heading into yesterday's votes because Murkowski and Collins had already stated that they were going to vote to acquit. And then uh, shortly after we finished recording on Wednesday, Mitt Romney went to the floor and he made it pretty clear pretty quickly uh, that he was going to be not going the same direction as the rest of his party. Here's just a quick clip. The grave question the Constitution tasks senators to answer is whether the president committed an act so extreme and egregious that it rises to the level of a high crime and misdemeanor. Yes, he did. Then he went on to explain that uh, he believes it was an abuse of power and about as egregious of one as he could imagine. Okay, so that means there were 48 of the 67 needed votes for removal instead of 47. So, Jim, that makes a huge, huge difference. But you wouldn't have noted on social media and elsewhere, the apoplectic reaction in both directions was just amazing yesterday. Uh, first of all, this is actually from this morning, uh, Nancy Pelosi giving a kind shout out to Mitt Romney. First time in history that uh, a senator has voted against his own president in a, uh, a decision regarding uh, impeachment. God bless him for his courage. Stephen Colbert on The Late Show, very newfound respect for Mitt Romney. Hearing Mitt Romney take his oath to God seriously was like finding water in the desert. Because we know Republicans are lying when they say that Trump didn't do anything wrong or that maybe he did, but he shouldn't be removed. Speaking of uh, Romney's faith, here's uh, Eugene Robinson and Brian Williams on MSNBC. When he spoke, he spoke about the oath he took to God. And yep. and his his he is really a man of faith, and his his faith um, uh, had a lot to do um, with his inability just to brush it off and say, oh, well, it's politics; it would be politically bad for me to go against Trump. Why should I do that? He's going to get acquitted, acquitted anyhow. He had made a solemn oath, and he took that very seriously, and that's a rare thing. And if that's I, a rare thing. Garrett Haig, who came days. to know him, said that it was central to his life. And to who he was. A lot of the other 99 uh, insist that faith is central to their lives. Right. They were not so burdened uh, by the oath. By the oath. So only if you side with the way uh, Brian Williams wants you to, does he uh, does he give you credit for how your faith might inform your position there. So, uh, Jim, this is Mitt Romney, who eight years ago was the uh, Republican nominee for president. He was castigated for the dog on top of the station wagon uh, for saying corporations are people uh, for allegedly giving cancer to workers whose company Bain Capital dealt with. Uh, what about your gaffes? Uh, binders full of women. This guy is just a corporation in a suit. You can't take him seriously. He's a flip flopper. But man, the newfound respect on Wednesday was quite something. You know, uh, 
I remember back in 2012, Charles Blow, a columnist for the New York Times, wrote to Romney, stick that in your magic underwear, reference to some crazy conspiracy theory about Mormons. I don't want to hear any one of these people say, oh, Mitt Romney, American hero and true statesman and all that kind of stuff, knowing that in 2012, they spent the entire year insisting that Mitt Romney was history's greatest monster, that he was giving steelworkers cancer, that all kind of stuff. The moment he turns against another Republican, then he's their hero. And we all know, let's assume there's a Supreme Court opening between now and Election Day, and Trump tries to put Amy Comey Barrett onto it or something like that. The moment Romney takes a vote that Democrats don't like, they'll go right back to him being this dangerous extremist theocrat and, and all that kind of stuff. It is so disingenuous. It is such... We love Republicans when they agree with us, and when they don't, they are evil. It is ridiculous. Which, by the way, this also means I, I don't buy any of this argument that Romney did this because he wanted media plaudits. Look, Mitt Romney knows exactly how the media game gets played. He's not doing this because he thinks the media will be nice to him now. Of all the criticisms of Romney, I'm not buying this argument that he did it because he was a coward. You don't make this choice unless you got a whole lot of guts and you're perfectly comfortable living with the fact that a whole bunch of people in your party, your usual allies back in the Utah Republican Party. I mean, the Trump administration is never going to do Romney a, a favor for the rest of his the rest of the time Trump's in office. Yeah, you don't you only make this choice if you're totally willing to accept the consequences. And I assume Romney is. So, you know what? I think there is some principle to that. I think there I think there is some courage to that. I don't think I would have necessarily made the same choice. I think it's kind of ridiculous to try to impeach the president when you know it's going to fail and you know that there's an election 10 months away. But hey, you know what, uh, Senator Romney, I got no beef with you. You know, God bless you. And, you know, we'll all move on from this. It was also interesting to see Ron, uh, when I think it was uh, McConnell or someone was asked, you know, how long is he going to be in the doghouse? And he says, we, we don't have doghouses around here. We're just on to the next vote. It's another day. Take the high road. We, we don't have an excess of Republicans up on Capitol Hill. <laughs> we can't throw everybody out the moment they take a vote that, that irks us. Yeah, the um, McConnell quote was, uh, the most important vote is the next vote. And so he says we don't have doghouses here. I thought that was a pretty good line. But, Jim, we we got to point out this isn't just uh, on the left uh, where people are overreacting to this. And, and I think I agree with you. Just because you wouldn't uh, arrive at the same conclusion as Mitt Romney doesn't necessarily mean that he needs to be canonized or uh, cast into the dungeon here. Because on the right, you had folks saying that he needs to be expelled from the Republican Party. Uh, there's an effort by at least someone in the Utah state legislature to uh, start a recall effort against him. And uh, my personal favorite overreaction is this from Lou Dobbs on the Fox Business Network. Romney is going to be associated with uh, Judas, uh, Brutus, uh, Benedict Arnold forever uh, when he is not even a footnote in a footnote otherwise uh, because of his uh, of his betrayal. Yeah. So ultimately, it boils down to if you agree with me, you're principled and you're patriotic. And uh, if you don't agree with me, you're a traitor and you're dead to me and we're never going to talk to you again. This ratcheting up the outrage to 11 every single time, particularly on a vote that ultimately made zero difference in the outcome of the trial, uh, is just baffling. Yeah, I'm just going to add one. You forgot the second quote that came after that, Greg, when Lou Dobbs said that Mitt Romney is not just a footnote of a footnote of a footnote in history. He is so unimportant and he is so inconsequential that I will spend the rest of my shows for the rest of the month denouncing him. That's how little he matters. All right. Well, impeachment is over. What's not over are the Iowa caucuses for the Democrats. They're getting closer. They're getting closer. We're now, what are we at? 97% of the vote. Uh, it's clear uh, that Bernie won the first round of the popular vote, even won the second round of the popular vote. And now we're kind of in a dead heat for uh, the delegate count here. Buttigieg still slightly ahead, 
But Jim, now we're waiting on satellite caucuses, which means that these are groups of Iowans out of state that somehow got together and are um, sending in their their votes. And apparently these are lopsided in favor of Bernie. So maybe he gets to level ground with Buttigieg, maybe squeaks ahead, maybe stays a, a couple behind. But in the end, it's pretty much a wash on the delegate side. Both of them probably have some modicum of momentum going into New Hampshire, where Bernie's been leading in the polls quite handily the last few polls that have come out. So in the end here, um, what have we learned from this process in Iowa? And has it uh, has the delay truly changed the trajectory of the race? Um, I think, first of all, I think it has helped a few. I think uh, uh, it probably was good for Amy Klobuchar to be the first one out and give the first speech and to be able to give what sounded like a victory speech. She did not hit 15%. And I think her campaign is, a you know, it should be over. Uh, you know, that was her best state, but she's, you know, still in it, still going. Pete Buttigieg acted like he had won and, you know, he may end up with the most, God, what are they calling it now, Greg? The uh, delegate, state delegate equivalents or something? That's, uh, yeah, uh, I don't even know. Oh, no, I'm sorry, yeah, SDEs, which, by the way, I thought that was something they were teaching you about in health class. Um, sorry, state delegate equivalents, where Buttigieg, last I checked, has the advantage 26.2% to 26.1%. But if you look at the vote results in the second round, you end up with a round-robin tournament in which the totals get adjusted because you have to carry the one, except in the Western count. I'm just making this all up. This is completely <laughs> convoluted and ridiculous. And as somebody pointed out, Kevin in Albuquerque is one of my favorite guys on Twitter. And he says, it used to be simple. Vote for the one you want. And they've turned it into Calvin Ball, for those who used to read Calvin and Hobbes. Yes. But the rules were never the same twice, and they're constantly changing. And by the way, it's 97%, which is good. We've now got a whole lot of them. I mean, that still means there's about almost 3% that are still out there. And Greg, it's Thursday. <laughs> and by the way, Greg... This whole concept of satellite caucuses has to be the greatest scam in the history of American politics. <laughs> I noticed this on, on Monday afternoon when all of a sudden you're watching CNN and they're showing you live coverage of the caucuses before, well before anybody shows up in Iowa. And they're reporting from Florida and Arizona and all these other states. And you realize, oh, these are people who are registered to vote in Iowa, but who live in these other states. Maybe they're snowbirds. Maybe they have more than one re you know, residence or something. And they're basically saying, look, I winter in Florida. But I want to vote in the caucuses. So the you know state decides, okay, the state, you know, Iowa Democratic Party says, okay, there are apparently enough of you in places like Florida and Arizona where we're going to set this up, where you get to participate in your own caucus down in Naples or wherever it was or, or Phoenix or, you know, and you get to go through the process before everybody else. You get covered live on CNN. <laughs> and oh, by the way, like you get to participate in the first contest of the entire nom presidential nominating process. And you don't have to live in Iowa, or at least, you know, for a chunk of the year. It's as if, Greg, somebody had said, I want all the advantages of being an Iowan and living in Iowa, but I don't want to have to actually live in Iowa and deal with things like cold winters and stuff like that. It is astounding. But uh, my guess is the Bernie folks have every reason in the world to be upset. Uh, and they will be. I mean, partially it's because that's the default setting, but partially it's also because they genuinely could say, wait a minute, we won. Under this crazy delegate uh, formula, we're, we're coming in second, even though we have the most votes. Um, but then the other one other bizarre wrinkle to this is that the New York Times just said earlier this morning, the results released by the party on Wednesday were riddled with inconsistencies and other flaws. 
More than 100 precincts reported results that were internally inconsistent, that were missing data, or that were simply not possible under the complex rules of the Iowa caucuses. In some cases, vote tallies do not add up. In other cases, precincts are shown allotting the wrong number of delegates to certain candidates. And at least a few cases, the Iowa Democratic Party's reported results do not match those reported by the precincts. Greg, just how bad does this have to get before people say, all right, this doesn't count. We're going to do this all over again. <laughs> no do-overs, no do-overs in primaries and caucuses. But uh, yeah, I saw the, the post of uh, one county, uh, their Facebook post with their results did not match up with what the official state party had. And I'm still chalking this up to just people not understanding the convoluted process. Some people are admitting that to some extent and then blaming Bernie for demanding the changes so we could actually get the first and second round Vote totals, which didn't happen in previous cycles. We only got the delegate counts, which uh, I think the process has been eye-opening, even if we still don't really understand it. But uh, it's just just maddening. And I guess these uh, satellite caucuses are the caucus equivalent of an absentee ballot. The difference is instead of just asking for a ballot and mailing it back on time, you got to actually do this and say, okay, if you're for Bernie, go over to Cabana 1. And if you're for Warren, go over to <laughs> Cabana 2. And, and Over by that end of the pool, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Shuffleboard court, that's Biden. I can't get my head around. We're going to do it this way. You know, there is this thing called a primary. <laughs> right. Where you show up whenever you want, morning, lunch hour, afternoon, after work. Go ahead, whatever you feel like it. You just show up, you, you mark a spot on the ballot, and then you go home. <laughs> Your neighbors don't get to harangue you. No one gets to give you the stink eye because your boss doesn't know who you voted for. You just show up and vote and then you come out and then at the end, oh, this is who won. But why would we want to do that? <laughs> so as far as I remember, if I remember correctly, uh, New Hampshire polls closed pretty early, like at 7 p.m. So we could easily have pretty concrete results, certainly by nine o'clock. Do you think the director or the chairman of the New Hampshire Democratic Party is just going to do a giant mic drop around 930 and say, that's how you do it, folks. I'm sure the instructions are, guys, I want this vote tabulation done fast and furious. <laughs> I want everybody in bed and able to click over to something on Netflix in prime time. Okay. Now, by the way, it's worth noting, I think you're, I think you're correct. It's around 7 p.m. Now, what you often have is people get online, technically 7 o'clock rolls around. And for most jurisdictions, the attitude is if you're online, we're not going to close the doors. They'll extend it a little bit. You might you sometimes even see court fights and people trying to get injunctions. You got to hold them up. The lines are so long. You got to hope for another hour. The other thing I would point out, if you happen to be in New Hampshire and you're thinking about doing it, go out and vote early in the day if you can. Get up early. Go do it before work if you can, because I believe it was Hillary versus Obama 2008 here in Virginia. There was an ice storm in the afternoon. Yes. It was a mess. And I think Mrs. Campaign spot did not get a chance to vote that day. Uh, I think I had voted for, I think it was McCain that year, but I did it before the day and a whole bunch of people. And it, it's, I think this was back when Virginia closed at six. So it's it early. It's fairly early it's for early, the yeah. work hour. And lots of folks got out of work. The roads were a mess. Traffic was a mess. Getting off the roads, et cetera. Vote early, folks. Get it done with. And, you know, otherwise people might go with these crazy caucus ideas. Jim, I do remember that day because I ended up voting that morning. By that time, the Republican race was down to McCain and Huckabee. Not a big McCain fan, so I voted for Huckabee. I did stand there for a while at the table when they asked me Republican or Democratic ballot because in Virginia there's no party registration. And I seriously thought about voting for Obama only to make life miserable for Hillary Clinton because I saw her as the biggest threat at the time. 
which shows you how good of political prognostication skills I was exhibiting at the time. Ultimately, I didn't want to be part of uh, helping any Democrat get across the finish line in case they actually won that year. But I think it's a good lesson with all these Republicans licking their chops that Bernie might be the nominee. Uh, Be careful what you wish for. Uh, It's going to be uh, a bumpy ride no matter who the nominee is here. And while we still don't know who it's going to be for the Democrat, uh, thinking you know who is the easiest one to beat might not work out that way. Yeah. I mean, right now, we we talk about how things have been looking pretty good for Trump over the last couple of weeks. Democrats seem very divided, you know, uh, all all kinds of internal divisions. All of these candidates have giant flaws. I don't think you want to run on socialism when unemployment is below 4%. But, you know, everyone was saying, oh, Trump totally has this in the bag. Trump is a lock for reelection. We're also telling you that there's going to be a red wave in 2018. Okay? There wasn't a red wave. We did OK in the Senate races, picked up a couple there. It was nice, but lost a whole bunch of governor's races that Republicans wanted to keep and lost the House. So you just never know. I, look, if you're good at voting the Democratic, first of all, if you're a Republican, I don't think you should vote in the Democratic primary. We don't like it when they do it to us. I don't think I think Repu- Democrats should pick Democrats. I think Republicans should pick Republicans. But if you do choose to me, pick the highest floor. Like pick pick the guy who is the least bad because the range of possible outcomes isn't nearly as bad for you. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I guess everybody everybody likes to gamble, I guess. And, uh, you know, what could happen? All the Democrats were thinking in 2016. We'll see. We're seeing uh, some of the headlines come out of Trump's uh, post-acquittal press conference here. We might talk about that tomorrow. We've already got expletives and other things. So, uh, Jim, we'll see what's going on. And uh, we'll wrap up the week in fine style, I'm sure. See you then. Can't wait till Friday, Greg. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a nice review. And we'll see you Friday for the Three Martini Lunch.